Hello, Brexit mutineers. My name is Dorian Linsky. Welcome back to Romaniacs, the Brexit podcast that prefers facts to ground us optimism. It's ultimatum week in Brexit land. We'll be looking at the take-it-or-leave-it parliamentary vote on the Brexit deal, if there is a Brexit deal, that David Davis announced in the Commons on the 13th of November. Parliament will get a binding vote on whatever deal UK and EU come up with, announced our Churchill Insurance dog-faced Dexu Secretary. But if MPs vote no, we will still leave the EU on a no-deal basis. Is this the big concession to remain rebels and Labour MPs that was touted, or is the government just giving MPs an absolutely free choice of frying pan or fire? Also, we'll be examining Michel Barnier's two-week deadline for the UK to show enough progress in the exit talks for trade talks to actually start. What's it all mean? Also, we'll be taking a fond look back down memory lane and Pretty Patel's resignation. What are things coming to when you can't go for secret meetings with the Israeli Prime Minister without everyone going crazy? Plus, why Denmark wants you to move there and a guide to Lexit from our own Ian Dunt. Hi, Ian. Editor of politics.co.uk. How are you? Uh, hello. Uh, yeah, no, very well, very well. I feel that every cabinet secretary that we lose the world just feels a little lighter. <laughs> There's more where that came from. <laughs> and we also have Gronya Maguire, comedian, writer and fortunate Irish person who will be able to travel anywhere she lives <laughs> after Brexit. If you're suffering from news poisoning like us and you're in London, her show What Has the News Ever Done For Me is on at the Camden Head on Camden High Street on December 13th. Hi, Gronya, you on the show in the summer. Are you more or less optimistic now? Oh, I'm just so optimistic. It's going to be such a great Brexit, guys. <laughs> <laughs> it's all gone to plan. The grown-ups are in charge. And the more I find out about the grown-ups in charge, uh, the more confident I am. You know, they know that they're not supposed to masturbate at desks during work hours. <laughs> they're completely, uh, uh, you know, uh, mature enough to oversee the future of this country. They're Brilliant. a great bunch of lads. Yeah, just bants, just bants. And this week, we're delighted to have the Evening Standards political columnist Rosamond Irwin with us as special guest. Rosamond also writes for Elle and the New Statesman, and she's a regular guest on Newsnight, the Today programme, and the BBC Newspaper Review. Hi, Rosamond. Thanks for coming. Thank you. So you're, uh, you're an unapologetic Ramona. When George Osborne took over the standard, was it go, go, go for the Ramonas? Well, our paper had backed Remain. And in fact, there, there was a front, an alternative front page drawn up because of our deadlines that was a, an alternative world, rather happier world that could have been uh, in my mind. But yes, uh, obviously, we do have now somebody who is not very happy about the Brexit situation uh, leading us. And uh, yes, the standard is free to say when things are going and not Theresa May's way. <laughs> a freedom that he makes the most of. Is, uh, is George Osborne a sort of hands-on editor? Does he sort of dig in on the opinion? Yes, uh, particularly the comment pages, obviously, which I think people have noticed that our leaders are a lot more exciting than they used to be. The leader columns tend not to be uh, the most exciting bits of newspapers, but now that's probably one of our most read sections. <laughs> and you wrote a barnstorming piece for The Standard in October saying the young's aversion to Brexit is about economics as well as identity, uh, about how your generation has personally been screwed by Brexit. What drove that? Yeah, I mean, I think... I think it's particularly people a little bit younger than me. So I entered the workforce in 2007. Uh, I was a business journalist then. And so I saw everything fall apart, essentially. But I've got some friends a couple of years um, younger than me who, uh, you know, watched everyone else go off and graduate into the jobs they expected to go into. And then it didn't happen for them. And the friends of mine who are most upset about Brexit, they feel like they've had this period of their lives, a few years, where they you know, they were doing jobs that they felt really weren't the jobs that they had anticipated going into. And then they've sort of got stuck. And there is lots of evidence that suggests that people who graduate into a recession where there are no jobs around or leave school into that economy, they they never actually quite catch up. And so I think for lots of them, this is an economic thing. They didn't want another 
big shock so soon after. And they were clever enough to see that it would be eventually. And you started off in business. And when did you move into sort of Yeah, politics? I did five years as a business journalist. Um, I was a market reporter, which meant that my job was essentially finding synonyms for Rose and Fell. Um, <laughs> as exciting as that was, I thought the time was, was to move on to past is new. And now you just have to think up synonyms for disaster catastrophe yeah. Farago, Farago <laughs> yes how, how rude are we allowed to be on this okay okay but but yeah if we're allowed to swear that's probably better isn't it <laughs> that really does that opens up the number of options that you have that you can't use on the standard leader page i'd imagine no indeed you're not allowed sod i discovered the other day which i thought was not even a swear word but anyway sod that yeah does george osborne does he got has he, has he been given, you know, those little green visors yet? <laughs> All the green visors, what are the green visors? You know, like, you know, like from the 1930s, the newspaper editors. <laughs> I, I think know. he should wear one of the, or like, you know, those little things to roll up his sleeves. Well, yes, no, he hasn't got a special outfit yet. I, I will advise him on that. That's <laughs> a little hard wise. helmet well, for a really tough day. Yeah. <laughs> for big news. Yeah. <laughs> also, reporters don't have the, the hats with the press card what? in the brim. And they don't all rush to a bank. Of phone boxes. <laughs> oh, I've been doing it wrong all these years. I'm still doing that. No, no. Have I got a scoop for you? <laughs> Ros will be helping us explore this week's Brexit grief and misery later. But first, here's Gronia with some quick messages. Yes, remember you can lend your support to Romaniacs by backing the show on Patreon, the crowdfunding platform. Pledge a bit of money every month and you will help us develop live shows, videos and more. And you can get smart Romaniacs gear, including T-shirts, mugs and bags and early bird discount opportunities for those live shows. There are links to our Patreon page at romaniacs.com plus a special message to academics in the pay of Brussels and the students that they indoctrinate. Wrap up warm for the endless Brexit winter in our Remain University sweatshirt in attractive EU blue and yellow. You can get it at romaniacs.myshopify.com. It's what the well-dressed subversive is wearing this season. OK, let's rip off the plaster of this week's Brexit news. The day before debate on the withdrawal bill resumed in earnest, David Davis announced a binding Commons vote on the final deal, although we're nowhere near knowing what that deal is. And this sounded like a good thing until it became clear that the choice would be between whatever deal Davis could cobble together and no deal at all. There was an audible gasp in the Commons, apparently, of this. Unlike an inaudible gas. <laughs> much, much less impressive. And this was against the backdrop of Michel Barnier giving Britain two-week deadline to come up with vital clarification on our financial commitments before trade talks can even start. Davis, of course, dismissed this with a magnificent display of waffle on Sky News. So, Ros, is there anything at all in Davis's offer, or is he just offering us a choice of death by hanging or electric chair? Uh, no, I think the latter, yeah, pretty much. Um, <laughs> There's nothing that makes me feel particularly comforted about where we're heading. Well, that, that, that's the theme of our show. Very much on, very I'm much on message. message. But, I mean, when it, because there was this sort of... Uh, much was made of this audible gasp when MPs would just go, what? Can it be true? Should MPs not have noticed this before? <laughs> like, mm. wasn't this kind of... Yeah, but a lot of what goes on in the Commons is just theatre. It's not... Right. I mean, don't get me wrong. They don't understand shit about what's going on. <laughs> but, but just, just because they're gasping doesn't necessarily mean it was the fact. It could just be right. their little umbrella, you know. They make all sorts of noises. The pointing is especially pernicious and irritating that they do. Mm. Um, I kind of... I 
feel a little bit more optimistic about this. The most, you know, I mean, within context of we're still completely doomed. But nevertheless, there are scenarios. This does sort of feel like a slight change. Before, we've been promised emotion and what was going on. Now we're being promised sort of you know, primary legislation, a full act. You go through it. Now, there's obvious restrictions there. If you put an amendment in there that changes the treaty that you've done with the EU, you'd have to reopen the treaty. So no one realistically is really going to vote for an amendment that would change the deal very much. But nevertheless, that kind of big, meaty bill, at the same time, the proposition is going to be going to the European Parliament. This is over a six-month window, right, from sort of the autumn of, of next year up until spring. Now, I, don't, I think Westminster is going to really struggle to not hold it at the same time. The argument will be if the European Parliament's voting on it, why can't ours at the same time? So let's say there's about three months until Brexit Day to do it. What happens if they lose? We say it's a no, that means you just fall out. But that assumes that the government is in place to insist upon that. And it seems to me that if they lose that bill, if that bill is defeated... That is a de facto vote of no confidence in the government. And suddenly you get a very chaotic situation developed where you could possibly have a new government being formed. Hard to see how the mechanics of that operate. There are all sorts of constitutional complexities, but it's possible. Or even a delegation of MPs going to Brussels and saying, well, we petition. I'm not, you know, the laws around that are uncertain. Who is the UK in this scenario? It's, it's very, very weird and obviously completely unprecedented. But nevertheless, as bleak as everything looks... I actually think that that introduces a note of sort of chaos and uncertainty of the proceedings that could, just could possibly work out to our advantage. I like that chaos is being sold as the positive thing here. Well, yeah, well, the thing is, if you've got the kind of certainty that we've been faced with for the last 18 months, yeah. any kind of chaos is, is sort of better than what we're, we're facing. Really. Yeah, and of course, we may be seeing in the coming weeks some more cabinet resignations, quite possibly. Mm. And as it, they sort of chip, chip, chip away at that cabinet, um, Theresa May obviously gets ever weaker and I, I don't know, I, I'm not even, well, clearly uh, people have been sounding the death knell for her, um, uh, her premiership for pretty much, uh, what is it, four, four, five months now? God, I don't know, it just feels like it probably. No, it has been five months. But I, I just can't quite see her even getting to next year. But then, you know, I've been wrong every time I've said that. So I think that's quite right. I yeah. mean, you, but you even look at, you know, I mean, the Telegraph page came out today. Again, we record on Wednesday, this is on Friday. Telegraph page talking about a Brexit meeting is... We've talked a lot on this programme about how Tories aren't coming forwards to rebel when the, when the moment comes. Well, actually, at the moment, they kind of are. I mean, these guys are starting to show some proper backbone out there. You look at the Dominic Grieve statement to the Commons yesterday was, was full fire. I mean, he was really going for it. That sense, that distinction we used to have where the way he talked off the record and the way he talked on the record were very, very different things kind of is starting to go away now. Now he's talking on the record in the same way that he was speaking off the record before. I think because he's so pissed off about this date that they've tried to put into the legislation. So it feels like there's a shift there. Whether that's enough of a shift that enough Tories would vote against the final deal and basically collapse their own government is another matter entirely. But there's still a year to go until that kind of situation will be presented to us over a year. And there's chance for plenty more chaos, of, you know, cabinet resignations, of lack of authority from a prime minister, and plenty more moments for us to realise the repercussions of what would be contained by that, by that deal. And the Telegraph front page seems to be an amazing own goal because, one, they look like a, a cheerful, endearing bunch on here because they've used their official photos. The MPs, yeah. The MPs. So they, they all look kind of kind of fun. Um, but also it's like once you've been called out like that, you know, if you're saying, oh, people aren't really stepping forward and then you've got like the Telegraph basically pulling you mm. forward and the reactions that I've seen from, from a few of them on, on Twitter, Anna Subri, obviously, Heidi Allen, maybe some more that I haven't seen, um, they're just like, okay, then bring it on. It just seems like, you know, to, by exposing them, we will crush them. And in fact, it's like you, you look at that and you just think might as well step up. Um, 
I always thought I was up to date on Brexit. I was like, yeah, I've got it. I've got it. So, But the last few days have got really confused again. So can, just to clarify, what's happened is David Davies has said that we're going to have a final vote and the Commons have said, OK, cool, but we're going to introduce loads of like, oh, can you tweak this or can you change that? Can you tweak this? And people are panicking because then it mightn't be ready by the final... So no, there's so there's two separate bills really to deal with that. The first one is the repeal bill that we, they're doing now, and they have thrown more amendments. I think probably like a historical mm. record of amendments now onto that mm. thing, are really trying to adjust it. And what that bill does is it basically takes all the European laws, transfers them into British law in time for Brexit Day, and then gives ministers all these powers to tinker with them. The bill that he's promised that he promised yesterday, which actually did come from this because it came from a Dominic Grieve amendment that the government basically thought it was going to lo- lose actually basically says, no, we're going to put primary legislation, which is the sum total of the Brexit deal that we may or may not get with Michel Barnier. And we're going to put that to the to the Commons for them to accept or reject. So that, those are two separate bills. I mean, the, the latter one is just a sort of an elevation of what had already been promised, but I think one that could have some kind of qualitative sort of significance to it. And um, what, what, what were MPs shocked about? What was the gasping for? The, if they voted against the deal, then it's just no deal when you fall out without any kind of arrangement. But, you know, they should have known this. The other thing he said, which is almost laughable, is he basically said, oh, by the way, the vote might be after Brexit. <laughs> so you sort of think that that is just the man. I mean, you must see that that is an extraordinary thing for you to have said. And then, but, but I think that gives an indication as to what they're going to try and do, which is use time and push the time, push the time, so that it's almost impossible to have any kind of response to it apart from to accept the deal. Right, which time is exactly is surely why everybody stepped up now, because they realise that the egg timer has turned over. And if they don't do this now, if, if these... Mutineers, who I think very proudly own, owned their status as mutineers mm. uh, today, uh, as they're being dubbed, um, because they think this whole thing on the Telegraph actually is, is frankly beneath the Telegraph, which I would certainly say it is. It's mm. not. Uh, it is very Daily Mail-esque, isn't it? Um, mm. But also, uh, they've realised now, you know, the clock is ticking. And if they don't say it, start saying these things now, it's going to be a bit of a shock when they really try to say it in six months' time. I also, by the way, think that they've also realised the danger of that thing of putting the date into the bill. And that that's mm. where a lot of this problem is. And that's why these guys don't seem to be giving up on that and going, no, no, we, they, it looks like yeah. they're going to really try and get rid of that. That bit has to go. If that bit hasn't gone, I think we've, we've got a major we've got a major problem. And very quickly, Barnier's two-week deadline here. Is that a good move on his part? Yeah, well, I mean, it's sort of inevitable, really. I mean, they need answers, these guys, and they need it really soon. There's hardly anyone in Europe that thinks that we're going to be moving on in December. And if you don't move on in December, your next meeting's in March. And everyone has a one-year lead-in. Any sort of business, I mean, aviation, most importantly, but all sorts of businesses have a one-year lead-in. And that March is exactly one year from when we'd be leaving. So actually, the, the scale of the disaster is quite severe now. And Barnier said that a few days ago now, by the time this is heard, mm. there's basically only one week left for Britain to come up with something. There are rumours that Britain is going to accept this money. But again, every time Britain makes an offer, Theresa May then walks it back any time she's presented with any kind of opposition from you know, the right of her party. So God knows. But that seems to be all it is. It's the optics of the, of the divorce bill. Like, it has to be paid. But it just seems like the hardliners are... Yeah, and it's a pretty minor thing. I mean, I know it sounds ridiculous, but, but a few billion compared to the kind of severity of repercussion that we're talking about with our economy is not just pay the money. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, there is just no, there's no sense of scale in that. Just give them the money. It doesn't make any sense to die in a ditch over that bill. There's plenty of other things to die in a ditch over. This, the fact that it's happening over the divorce bill, that they won't even compromise that much, I think just speaks volumes. And is there a reason why they only meet once a month? 
like book clubs meet. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good time for everyone to do the reading, isn't it? <laughs> Why don't they get a wiggle on? There is, well, I think, to be honest, for the Europeans, it's not in, it's not in their interest. Yeah, like, and plus they've got plenty of other stuff to get on with, haven't they? The Europe. Yes. I mean, I think the idea that we are their dominant story at the moment. There's plenty of other things for them to think about. It consumes us, but frankly, if I were them, I'd be thinking, well, you know, this is like on my to-do list. This is that thing I might not sort of really bother that much with getting to. You know? <laughs> Just like a book club. Yeah. Just like a book club. Yeah. Britain is the colour purple. We'll get round to reading yeah, it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, never mind that. Cheer up, everyone. There's a new Brexit bolt hole opening up for us disaffected Europhiles, and it's called Denmark. The Danish Social Liberal Party is inviting British people to move to Denmark to fill their countless vacancies in the tech, construction, service and logistic industries. There's even a shortage of skilled staff in the communications industries, which means if things go right, we'll soon be broadcasting Romaniacs from Legoland. (laughs) The real Legoland. (laughs) We can provide you with the comfort of being a part of the EU, writes Morten Ostergaard leader of the Danish Social Liberal Party. We have Scandinavian design, bad jokes, bacon, lurpak, Lego. We also have some of the world's highest standards of employee safety, good salaries and high standards of living in general. The Danish government has even produced a website of vacancies at workindenmark.dk. Would anyone here leave the... Uh, UK, I mean, Gronio, you know, obviously you've got options here. But leave the UK for another European country post-Brexit. I used to write for the news quiz when Santi Toxvik was the host. So I know loads of... Strange facts about Denmark. Just as way to, they uh, they love bacon. They have got um, Lego, um, and uh, they once killed a giraffe in their zoo. <laughs> and it was very controversial. Morton Ostergaard didn't mention the giraffe. <laughs> I noticed. Cover up fake news. <laughs> fake news. If you're a giraffe, do not move to Denmark. That's my advice. Well, well I've I've got entitlement to. Well, actually, I have the thing that is most desired by Remainers in this country at the moment, which is an Irish grandmother, a dead Irish grandmother, <laughs> but nonetheless. Uh, so I am entitled to an Irish passport, um, which I sort of keep thinking that's somewhere on that to do list as well. Um, but uh, I think I, I speak German. Uh, everybody in Germany speaks English, so it's a completely useless language to have learned. But um, I could theoretically <laughs> move there. Uh, don't know they particularly need English journalists moving to Berlin, but hey-ho. But otherwise, I can't really think where I'd go. Berlin seems to be the place, doesn't it? Mm. I mean, it's like yeah. jam-packed full of DJs. Yeah. From, from from what I can tell, it's pretty much nothing but DJs and people running shops to sell things to DJs. <laughs> and secret restaurants. Yeah. Everyone's always going on about this fucking secret restaurant, as if it's a good thing that you can't find the restaurant. <laughs> I was like, you know, you've got to go down the stairs and then you knock four times or something. Yeah. And then, they, you know, there's a special place and it's yeah. all candles. You, DJ opens candles. the door. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Food's it's terrible. It's made by DJs. <laughs> 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 well, whenever, whenever you talk to kind of whenever I talk to sort of young musicians, writers, creative people, it's like Berlin. Yeah, still seems to be the place. I can't imagine. Mm. I mean, obviously, I hope Roz is right here about everybody speaking English. Yeah, I do. Because I don't have the German Literally, thing nailed. And they also speak English with uh, an American accent sometimes because they watch so much Friends, mm-hmm. genuinely, yeah. uh, and and other TV shows. But uh-huh. yeah, so they have all the kind of annoying. So they say American everything like it's a question. Kind yes, of thing, exactly. Right? Oh, so with a, so they whenever they oh, you are so Ross. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Please never do that again. <laughs> Because I think Berlin is like, it is really cool. Like I know some people have moved to Berlin and 
the thing is what Britain what London has specifically and I suppose other other more London is that um, it is it's such a creative melting pot and it's so exciting and so many of the best people in the in the creative arts work in London now but I don't know five years ten years time it's going to be very very different and I don't know how the UK seems like a very ungrateful place for immigrants as an immigrant it feels very ungrateful and very petulant and like, oh God, I guess we have to have immigrants. And at the moment, it's fine because it's got such brilliant creative industry. But if that changes, then it's going to look very different. Yeah, and I mean, Paris is trying really hard to lure that creative industry, and in particular, actually, the tech sector. They've got that mm. enormous thing that Macron actually went to launch to try to tempt um, tech companies. And, and I also think, I mean, Berlin seems cool at the moment in a way that, I mean, obviously I love London and actually I grew up here, so I've spent my, all my life here, but London is starting to have its cool really taken away mm. from it. And Brexit is, is very brand damaging, I think, to London. And obviously Sadiq, you can see Sadiq Khan's efforts to sort of mitigate against that with his London is open. And, you know, and actually he's a very good, I think he's, I think he's really good in those things that he's done, the sort of videos. But London doesn't seem as cool as it did. No, That's probably true, but you know, I, I just feel like I'd never go to any city in the world, and I include New York in this, that makes me feel anything like London, and that I feel is just as sort of completely liberating and sort of, it's sort of seemingly fair and, and you know, unjudgmental. And Grace and Perry says something really good about London, which is that if you dress as he does as a, as a little girl, it's not shocking in London. And if you're the kind of person like him that actually enjoys shocking mm. people, then <laughs> London has basically taken away the thing that he enjoyed doing. So why does um, all those documentaries where he goes yeah. around the country just, yeah. just trying yeah. to find people to shock? Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, who cares? It's a guy in a dress. Who cares? You know, which is a nice thing about London. But I actually think Berlin's got an element of that now too. Mm-hmm. Or maybe, maybe it has had for a long time. Um, so it's not as though nowhere else can get that feeling. Finally, cast your mind back to those far-off days of the Pretty Patel resignation. The former UK International Development Secretary waited till after we'd recorded last week's show before quitting, so a whole week late on this. This is possibly the worst thing she's done. I want her to be reappointed for five minutes just so that she can resign again. The spectacle of the country tracking Patel's flight back to the UK in real time is a comic one, but there are unanswered, but there are unanswered questions about the affair. Was number 10 really unaware of Patel's secret meetings with Benjamin Netanyahu? The Jewish Chronicle says not. Were foreign office officials briefing against Patel? She says they were. Is it all part of a turf war between Diffid and the foreign office, or between Patel and Boris Johnson, who saw her as a rival, or an attack by the Tory right, which has been attacking the very idea of a Department for International Development for years? Ian and Ros, what's the Kremlinology here? What's going on behind the scenes? How, how rude my last be about Pretty Patel? <laughs> okay, so Pretty Patel is someone who didn't believe in the department that she was heading up. When she was appointed to Diffid, someone I know who worked there at the time, who does not, who decided that she didn't want to stay working there, uh, described it as like um, putting the arsonist in in charge of the fire station. Um, which I thought was pretty accurate, actually. And obviously her big thing was I'm going to go through Diffid's, um, all of its aid spending, and I'm going to find where it's wasting money. And there was a big fuss made, particularly in the right-wing papers, about the fact that we were funding, for example, this girl band. Um, I think they were Ethiopian. Take that off, that's mm. wrong. Yeah. Um, and so we were funding various things. Now, that girl band was actually doing an awful lot of work uh, combating things like 
uh, forced marriage and uh, I think they did anti-FGM work and they did all this stuff about empowering girls. And so it wasn't as straightforward as we're funding, you know, Ethiopian Spice Girls. It was actually doing something useful in the world. But if you put that through the filter of the right-wing press who, you know, think that it's a ridiculous thing that we attempt to give 0.7% of our GDP in aid... uh, they, then it becomes this this terrible thing. So all along, she has been anti her own department. Um, and obviously, she did see it as a stepping stone job. But the idea that, that Theresa May had actually thought about her as a, an appropriate appointment, that seems utterly bizarre to me anyway, unless it is as a sort of sop to the right wingers. Hey, hey, one of you's in charge here. So that's been the narrative all, all, you know, all along. Then with what happened, I mean, it is extraordinary. I, I thought the best description of it was freelance diplomacy obviously she her sort of disaster well, her scandal was playing out at the same time as Boris Johnson was uh, making these really ridiculous comments about Nazanin Skari Radcliffe um, who's imprisoned in Iran and so the concentration you know sort of split between two scandals playing out together uh, in the media but actually as, as angry as I am about what Boris Johnson said what Pirishti Patel did is a whole extra level of awful because it's completely against ministerial code. Now, when you talk to people at DFIB, what they say is that she always had this element of, I, I don't like the rules, so I'm going to go and do whatever I like. And, you know, isn't it ridiculous that I've got to clear this with five civil servants or whatever the system is? So there is that sort of narrative coming out of there. But at the same time, obviously, some people say that how could number 10 not have known? So... I, but I, but I fall actually that I think she just went rogue. I just think she's an idiot. Yeah. I mean, I just you know you take that, that's why you need to clear it with five people because the UK doesn't recognise the Israeli claim on the Golan Heights. You know that's why because mm. they will take it's not the, the Israelis are many things it's stupid they are not and they are not stupid when they take her to a field hospital in the Golan Heights they know exactly what they're doing and what the deep diplomatic repercussions of that are. She goes along. This numpty bellend that she is. And, you know, and just by doing that, just absolutely fractures and, you know, decades of an approach since the 60s of how Britain deals with that particular foreign policy problem. So I don't even I don't even really believe, you know, it looks like a shadow of foreign policy, which, which I get. Because that's basically how how it would appear. And anyone's completely entitled to think that that's basically how I wrote about it. But then at the end of it, you do look and she had some of these meetings with these guys. I mean, she was meeting the sort of public security minister way off her brief, miles off her brief. This guy's a fucking lunatic as well. I mean, he wants a database of all Israeli citizens who support boycotting. He's a real authoritarian nutjob. She meets him in Israel. Then she meets him in the, uh, in the, com- well, in the House of Parliament. Um, and she has photos taken with him on the terrace. You know, so I mean, if it is the secret thing, she's been on the down low. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, how, how, how dreadfully foolish can you conduct yourself in this stuff? So by the end of it, you sort of think, well, it doesn't matter if, if, whether it's cynicism, she can't be allowed to keep the job. And if it's stupidity, she's clearly fun- mentally, functionally incapable of delivering on the job by virtue of how foolishly she's behaved. So either way, she, she had to go. Isn't it staggering, though, they think she's going to be back? I mean, all those people immediately being rolled out. And, of course, we know now that your time in the wilderness in politics is, is truncated. It's not what it used to be, mm. is it? Gove spent all of five minutes there. Mm. <laughs> Boris Johnson, welcome back. Um, but you think, how is it they think that she can have breached the ministerial code so hugely done something that is either, as you say, utterly stupid or, uh, you know, basically going rogue on foreign policy. And yet they think, they know, that isn't the end of her ever being in the cabinet, which is what I think it should be. Well, if you're like a, if you're a Brexiter, a Tory Brexiter at the moment, that just seems to be a kind of, you know, just a sort of get out of jail free card. It's just like, no, it's it's all right. I, you know, 
I'm hardline on Brexit and say, oh, okay, we'll sort it out for you. And what makes me so furious, and this came out of a very good article on the Prospect website about the kind of the sort of Tory rights war on DFID, um, was the fact that of all the departments that you could you, you could basically earmark, and now it's happened again with Penny Mordaunt. Mm. How do you pronounce that? Wow. You really, <laughs> I don't know. You can't say her name. She's so posh. You can't say her name without sounding posh. Penny Mordaunt. Um, is, is, you know, again, another Brexiter. But you put them in charge of DFID, which is a department, if you look at the kind of values that Brexiters tend to espouse, it's, it's like it's, a, it's such a terrible fit. If you want to find a department that you're going to sort of set aside for that lot, you know, it seems particularly kind of malicious and destructive to choose one which clearly they don't believe in. Well, you could have given Penny Mordaunt defence, of course, but but the logic was, obviously, that happened a week earlier. Uh, there is an argument, obviously, that you need someone more experienced at defence, but we didn't get that anyway. So um, so you could have given her that brief, which she actually does know a lot about, instead of giving her different. They are making a... You could just tell they were going to make a lot of the fact that she'd briefly worked in some she'd given aid somewhere in Romania I think it was and you thought yeah she did that sort of like a gap year thing or whatever and and you thought yeah that was quite a long time ago and and it's not really strictly relevant to running um, the International Development Department but um, but I think it's a it's a funny one isn't it because you sort of feel like uh, Theresa May might have actually had a master plan originally. I thought when she gave Boris Johnson the Foreign Office, she thought, well, I get rid of him. He's got to be on lots of trips and I'm going to cost him three quarters of a million pounds this year because he's going to have to give back his money for the Shakespeare book, which is half a million pounds. And a quarter of a million pounds he's going to have to give back um, uh, for the, tele- you know, he's not going to get for his Telegraph column. So I thought, well, actually, isn't that sort of a bit canny? She is punishing him in a weird way weirdly by giving him one of the officers of state but then of course you sort of thought well actually it's been a fiasco you know we've had loads of these gaffes and then this one is so far beyond being a gaffe um with what he said about iran that i just i i think i think it shows her foolishness actually and then uh pretty patel seems an equally bad i want to defend pretty patel i think she's getting too hard of time i really do i think these are all being really unfair i think what happened to pretty patel is she went on a lovely holiday in Israel, right? She had a bloody lovely time. I don't know if any of you like me. When I go on holiday, if I go to Spain, I come back, I'm like, I'm going to make a paella now. That's me now. That's my thing. So she went to Israel, came back, had a lovely time, said, you know what I love? You know what's my thing now? Funding the Israeli army. I love it. That's all I care about. That's all I want for Christmas. That's all I want to talk about. And then we're judging her because of it. Some fair in a way. Is. I think she's just a passionate lady. Just guilty of nothing more than an excess of enthusiasm. Yeah, she yeah. just really enjoyed. She just had a lovely time on holiday, guys. And you're all being really shady. <laughs> so, so before, we, before we move on, it's just something I'm slightly concerned about. If we, if if Boris Johnson is somehow forced out of the front office, does that mean? That he's going to write that Shakespeare book, and we're all going to have to read. Look, his he's not going to be writing it, is he? He's got a lot. Well, I mean, he will. He will. <laughs> it will be his words, but all the research isn't his, is it? It's what would it by be about? Some it... little minions who are paid peanuts mm. to do it. Oh, sorry, they pay the London living wage, aren't they? <laughs> um, but do we need another book about Shakespeare? Boris I mean, I was thinking about Churchill. Is, can they really think of no one else to do biographies of? Um, it's very really... best of the Beatles approach yeah. to British history. Isn't because it? he's not really yeah. writing about him. He's really he's writing about himself. himself. Particularly so, with you know, Churchill. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It'll just yeah. be him going, so I guess a lot of people have compared me to Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> that will be it. Yeah, well that's what, but actually, that is what he's going to do isn't it yeah. because it's going to be about uh, you know I'm this great wordsmith even though mm. uh, Boris you're really not actually uh, 
Um, you just can quote a bit of, you know, the classics. That's it, really. He's a blonde Russell Brand. He's like a slightly sleazier Russell Brand. <laughs> mm. We don't forget as well, it could be Damien Green, you know. We're going to have uh, things maybe coming out about him. But enough about the balmy right wing and their prejudices against Europe. What about the balmy left wing and their prejudices against <laughs> Europe? Ever since Cameron announced the referendum in February 2016, the endless pro-Brexit drumbeat in right-wing media has been accompanied by a slightly less deafening drumbeat on the left. The sound of Lexit, which holds that the EU is a bosses club, is designed to extend globalisation and drive down wages and rights, and if we're out of it, then we can build socialism in one country. Backed by voices as diverse and inspiring as George Galloway, Giles Fraser, Tara Galley and our old mate Frank Field, Lexit is widely seen to be behind Corbyn's lukewarm performance in the EU referendum campaign and Labour's unseemly haste in wanting to get on with Brexit. Ian Dunt has been digging deep into Lexit and you can read his thoughts on politics.co.uk and we'll share that on Facebook and Twitter. Ian, what did you learn about the anti-EU left? Um, okay, so like, there's loads of different facets of it, really. There's the bog standard, you've heard it all before, immigrants come over, battered down wages, this is bad for plumbers, but it's really good for bankers, it's sort of anti-immigration stuff. Then you've got the kind of really theoretical, academic, posh wing, this kind of bourgeois Bolshevik stuff, which is, you know, that by having this sort of explicit constitution, it's much harder to have a sort of societal overhaul along the sort of social... I mean, I tried to... That stuff's like trying to slit your wrist, so I didn't even bother covering it. It's so <laughs> tedious and posh. Weirdly posh, funnily enough. That's the main thing you take from it. Um, and then you have the sort of... I think the much more um, credible, much more interesting uh, sort of aspects around the way that the EU does things around strikes... And around what happens when workers' rights rub up against freedom of establishment, freedom of movement when a company moves around or moves workers. And what the EU's rules are around state aid, which is supposedly the bit that really matters the most to, to Corbyn. This stuff's actually really interesting. And it's one of those sort of political problems that you follow from the principles at the start and you end up in a place that actually can be quite difficult to sort of ascertain. I mean... On the sort of freedom of movement for employers, sort of what I called it in the article, it's basically what happens when, you know, a company, I mean, there's a couple of cases in the ECJ which are really important. One of them is called Laval, the other one's called Viking. They're both times that a company has basically tried to switch its either its units, the place where it's operating from, or the workers, so it can pay them a bit less and have less good conditions. Now, they're not much worse. You can't pay below the minimum wage. You can't break any laws in the country that they're operating in. But it's a way of slicing away at those marginal gains that workers secured. You know, say you've got, like, morning tea breaks or you've got extra money for, for extra hours. It's a way of chipping away at those above what is legal. And there are problems there. There's concerns there. Funnily enough, um, Emmanuel Macron, who's a real hate figure for the Corbyn left, actually is the person that's been securing the most amount of reforms to this and has just managed to secure some reforms on posted workers, exactly this kind of problem, to make it a bit less pernicious than it was before. On the other hand, on the state aid stuff, it's also kind of fascinating. Basically, the EU says you can own whatever you like. There is no bar to nationalisation. You can nationalise anything, but you must have competition in the provision of services. And that means you've got to have it, you know, even with private operators to public operators. That stuff is true. However, there are a range of exceptions, lots of exceptions in the case of market failure, in the cases of universal services, which allow, for instance, things like the fact that the, the trains are obviously, you know, running national lines in France, pretty much the same sort of thing in most places in Germany. Same with energy in Germany, same with university tuition in France and other places like that. So it's complex. It's hard. There's areas there that I think are really concerning about the way that the EU operates and that should be 
criticised from a left wing perspective, and that just because you know we're we're in this position now where we're feeling very very obviously critical of Brexit, doesn't mean that we should lose an eye as to what those problems are in that stage. There are other areas where it's completely exaggerated and unhelpful. And where you sort of start to suspect what's really going on in the Corbyn machine, because when you look at the manifesto, these you know, plenty of researchers have been two separate studies I looked at, 27 points in that manifesto, and all of them would have got through the state aid rules. There was nothing in Corbyn's manifesto in this election that would have been too left wing for what's going on in the EU. So then the question becomes, do they not know or care? Or does Corbyn actually intend to pursue a rather different policy platform by the time he came to power than the one that he was putting forward to the public you know, when he was going for a general election? Well, there were quite a few people at the, uh, last June who made these criticisms. And there, of course, there are valid left-wing criticisms of the EU. And the people like Owen Jones, Paul Mason, Yanis Varoufakis, who were very critical of the EU, but still argued for Remain, which seemed to me kind of, it, it's sort of an entirely you know, entirely valid position, you know, because they were sort of weighing it up and that obviously wanting to remain did not mean that you loved everything about the EU. Um, with the kind of legsit mentality, I mean, I don't want to judge this on, on Twitter spats with Giles Fraser. <laughs> <laughs> He's perhaps not its leading intellectual light, but um, there, there did seem to be an almost, it, it, it very soon became an appeal to feelings. It didn't become about, we, he was not going on about state aid rules. It very much became a kind of uh, a goodies and baddies yeah. kind of struggle. Is there that kind of quasi-religious kind of... Well, I think we've all been sucked there. into the whole tribal aspect. And you see it exactly. I mean, Josh Fraser, he is a smart guy. He's an interesting guy. You know, he was, a, I thought, an interesting thinker up until Brexit and then just got sucked into that thing where it just hammers away at your intellect. And I think that's happened to lots and lots of people, you know, on all sides. We're, we're sucked into this tribalism thing. It's actually really hard to find out about a lot of this stuff. Like the Laval Viking cases, there's hardly any experts out there to talk about it. But actually what these cases do is they impose quite severe restrictions on the situations in which you can have a legal strike if it's an industrial dispute that covers a transnational company or a transnational service. But it's hard to get to the facts of it. You're right. Hardly anyone's dealing in those. How well this is understood in Corbyn's office is something that I do not know. Because I've spoken to people there who really are, exactly as you're saying, just lost in that sort of broad, brushstroke, colourful, tribal sort of attitude. And I've spoken to others that actually do have quite precise understandings of how things work. And I think probably are planning for a, a much more radical government than the one that they have maybe presented to voters, certainly in 2017, but may feel that they can present to them, you know, at a later general election. I actually spoke to somebody who had voted for Lexit reasons, voted leave, and then changed his mind. And he said that before the vote, he'd um, sent off to the EU, written to the EU, and ask for clarification on these certain policy ideas. Uh, not perhaps your typical voter. Um, and the answers came back and they were thorough enough to kind of to completely change his mind, but they were like three days late. <laughs> but it was kind of fascinating. His gut instinct told him that as a socialist, he should be anti-EU. But he sought clarification and the facts changed his mind, but he had to sort of dig in. Hmm. And Ross, do you, have you had many sort of, I don't know, Dealings, lively exchanges with, with this side of the Brexit wing. Well, my father, who was, who was very left-wing in the 70s, uh, did not vote uh, because the perception was that the joining EU would uh, chip away at workers' rights. And my dad accepts that that is not what happened, uh, you know, and actually thinks that rights were hugely improved, uh, particularly for women in the workplace, about things like maternity discrimination. And we could instantly have, have had that legislation anyway, but um, a lot of that was done by the EU. And so uh, he uh, put a little 
uh, vote remain poster in uh, the window. And yeah, so so I do think people are, are can have their mind. I mean, in, in all things, people can have their minds changed. But if they're receptive to the reality and actually analysing it rather than going on gut, and I know lots of us did simply go on gut. I mean, I can't imagine any world in which I would ever have voted leave. And a lot of that actually... I like Europe. I mean, it's really straightforward, basic things. Uh, but that it are to do with my gut equally. But at the same time, I think some people, you know, did bother to analyse the facts. And, and actually, maybe for some of them, the EU showed that it, what it had done was not what people had feared it might uh, on the left. Well, what surprised me, I suppose, if you're talking about the, the tribalism of it, is that... Um you know, one of the reasons I voted Remain was I kind of liked a lot of the people who were, you know, not, not every single one, but I kind of felt at home on the Remain side. And what surprised me when, because the loudest voices on the Leave side were always the right. And I couldn't understand how these quite sort of idealistic uh, socialists would sort of vote, could vote the same way um, as, you know, people putting up posters of, you know, refugees and... Jim Davidson. Turkey. Jim Davidson. <laughs> <laughs> you say, I was trying to think of the worst one. Jim Davidson, <laughs> Nigel Farage, Roger Daltrey. Um, no, but, you know, like, but to sort of, to, to be able to sort of look at the, who's standing alongside you. Yeah. And, but people, I, and go, yeah, no, we'll work out in our direction. It'll be okay. Well, that's what I put, I put that to Kate Hoey when I interviewed her. And obviously, so she she was my local MP and I've just discovered because I'm moving, she's going to be my MP again. Great. These two should just um, get married. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> and I put that to her because, you know, there obviously she was on a boat with Farage. Um, and, you know, and the rather funny thing is someone describing it as look how old Rose and Jack have got, which I thought was very good. <laughs> and, but, you know, she said, well, you want me to be in this camp because that means you're going to get uh, a Brexit that delivers, you know, uh, for, for workers and all, all, and all that stuff. I'm afraid I find that argument utterly unconvincing. I think sometimes you should look who you're in bed with mm-hmm. or on a boat with and think, actually, maybe this does reflect on me. Now for a bit of telly. Did you watch British Workers Wanted on Channel 4? On Thursday night, in what is known in the trade as a noisy documentary, i.e. one with plenty of conflict, it follows Leave voting recruitment consultant Sarah and Gaynor as they try to replace their disappearing EU migrant workforce with Brits, who, true to form, are work-shy malingerers who live for their fag breaks and have bad knees. <laughs> um, Ian, did, uh, did, you, did you learn anything from this? No, Very entertaining. I fucking hated this. Um, I hated everything about it. I hated uh, the people that made the program. I hated what it was about. I hated the way in which they made it. I hated everyone in it. Um, it was <laughs> fucking dreadful. Maybe it's not them, it's you. <laughs> I just can't. I mean, why? so it com- when it really comes, you know, from that place of... Oh, the weird, really weird psychological thing of among, especially you get a lot in Brexit circles, but it was clearly on show there. This idea that British workers are all just these feckless, work shy, dimwit scumbags, which I do not accept as a starting point. I mean, half the people they interviewed were just a bunch of kids that went, "No, I'm not going to do a job because it's the summer, and if I can get away with not doing a job, I don't want to." And I just think, good on you. Why should you have to listen to that Protestant bullshit that sort of acts as if the only good way of living your life is by working your heart out? Honestly. There's a woman, you know, but even that, even the way that you Eastern Europeans are then talked about in ostensibly positive ways is, oh, well, they're so industrious, you know, as if that's the only quality that these guys have. They're basically like walking machines, you know, that come in and because they're prepared to work 12 hours to £7.50, that is some uh, £7.50 an hour, that is somehow considered somehow morally virtuous because they're prepared to be sort of exploited 
by by these by these businesses. And then the weirdest part is halfway through, basically, it's just like a picture of a country just in fucking calamity. And then halfway through, they go, oh, and by the way, now we're going to have a subplot about whether one of the women can get laid on Tinder. And that goes on for fucking ages. <laughs> it goes on for ages. I'm like, what is this? Did you not so, like Gaynor? Because she hated everyone as well. Which one was a Gaynor? Gaynor. She was the one that was just the like... Boss. Really, yeah, the real angry I, I older woman. she was the most poisonous, toxic witch I'd seen on TV for a really long time. I just thought she was dreadful. She was so mean. She was horrible to everyone. I, the only person I thought I was going to dislike more than her was... <laughs> that we're going to have to... Because maybe this is libel. <laughs> but, like, you know, there was, they, they bring in this 18-year-old boy, this ham-faced twat, who just sits there just accomplishing nothing. Not libel. Like, uh, right, <laughs> not libel, yeah. And then she just sits there hating on her. And I just thought, you both just seem so unspeakably awful. And I really hope I never... I, I never watch reality TV because, you know, I fundamentally don't really like people. Couldn't give a fuck what they do. <laughs> <laughs> and this just cemented that impression for me. I never intend on watching any more reality TV again. <laughs> what? Not even Love Island? Like <laughs> well, what did you think? <laughs> <laughs> Gazes at smoking ruin. I, you know, I, th- I felt that there was stuff that I wasn't being told, and that there was sort of, like I said, there were stereotypes. I th- uh, the stereotypes, the English workers were generally shown to be just like hopeless <laughs> and or racist. <laughs> and the, um, the Eastern European workers, yeah, were just kind of industrious and or fed up and going home. Um, and there just there wasn't enough kind of because there was no voiceover. You didn't get to go into sort of, I don't know, the economics of it. Because when they were going, I'm not going to do that for 750 an hour. And I was just like, because of minimum wage. And I'm just like, I is that could, could they be paid more? Yes, exactly. Is, is that an unreasonable thing to say? Like, mm. it was very... And then when you've got, like, you know, Gaynor coming in and blaming, like, hippies. Because they all grew up. Oh, you, it was this... You, you missed this. Um, where she's just going, because people used to drive around in, like, psychedelic buses, VW camper vans, and smoke dope, and no wonder their kids are all... And it's just like, I don't know, man, if you've ever seen just, like, footage of what life was like in Britain in the 60s. It wasn't all VW camper vans and sort of free love and wasters. And she, 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 she was, like, a very angry, hateful uh, woman. But I didn't learn... I mean, I don't know. I didn't learn much. I liked the fact, from what was said earlier about people changing their minds, is that Sarah, the younger woman, um, she did sort of say at the end, yeah, I wouldn't vote leave now because now I'm seeing... You know how it affects my business. <laughs> this this is your almost fetishistic love for anyone changing their mind on a subject. <laughs> no, if anyone does it in any anybody, context. You're like, I like it now. Anybody, <laughs> anybody, and then, then you've just got like going outside having a fag. Go, no, still do it. Don't <laughs> <laughs> care, okay, still do it. There's, there's a bit where she talks about like, she talks about Beyonce's ass for like three minutes of this thing, and you just think like, why? Has the program followed them outside to talk about Beyonce's ass for three minutes? Because basically, I guess there was people watching the sort of, I guess, some kind of management going, well, this is a disaster. What you're showing is just like that there's no hope for the country and immigrants are leaving and they're the only people that can do any work and all of it's a complete catastrophe. So you better put in some chat about Tinder and Beyonce's bum. And so that you get five minutes of that. It's, it's, it was just utter rubbish from start to finish. So anyway, it's still available <laughs> on <laughs> Channel 4 On Demand. Uh, British workers wanted... Do you think that David Davis is going to watch that and next time he talks about Brexit halfway through just going, hey, Beyonce's bum, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, what do you think of my swipes? 
There was a question about whether time, you could put Botox time. in a bum, <laughs> yeah. which uh, was probably... That was yeah. actually the most interesting part. That was. That's been haunting me. I have no idea. <laughs> anyway. Um, finally, last week we promised you the return of Ask Romaniacs, where you, the beloved listeners, put your Brexit questions to the panel, and we got a load of them. So let's start with one from Ben Kappa. Ros, maybe you could feel this one. Who in the current or next generation of UK parliamentarians gives you any hope or indeed excitement about the steady on about the future of British democracy? Is there an Obama or Macron lurking anywhere that we haven't noticed? Oh, that's a really good question. It's quite, I, I actually think the 2015 Labour intake was good. I think the 2017 intake uh, was very patchy uh, because it was a rushed job uh, because the election... Uh, was a surprise. Um, and actually, I, I thought this is one thing that's been neglected about the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, is it would actually naturally lend itself to giving you better parliaments in terms of the, the calibre of parliamentarians. Well, I like Heidi Allen. She's looking at me at the front page of the Telegraph that's in front of me, uh, being With called a mutinous mutineer. grin. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think there are... I think there are actually good MPs uh, across the house. Joe Swinson's impressive. Um, Tulip Sadiq, who's been doing all this yeah, work on freeing Nazanin. Sigari Radcliffe is a fantastic MP. So I do think there are good. I think there are good people, and I, I suspect immediately after Brexit, uh, a lot of um, people in London were sort of going up to Sadiq Khan and said, telling him he was our great hope and he was, <laughs> had to save us. Um, but I suspect he's probably quite happy being mayor for another term, at least. Uh, I wouldn't want to come back to that shit show, mm. frankly. So when you can just be, you know, the most popular man in London. But I do think there is talent there. Ian, have you got any? No, I was just thinking, I just think Sadiq Khan really isn't all that. I mean, he's not, you know, it's it's sort of, it's nice to have him and his values. I really sign up to those values and having him in charge of London at this point feels great. Just that when you actually see him do the, when you see him operate and you see him do a speech or whatever, I just kind of think, oh, I just can't really see you being this sort of great inspirational leader. He doesn't seem that way. I mean, I, I even really liked him in Shadow Justice. I really do like his values. People talk about him as leadership material. I, I just don't quite see it. I think he can't bring that popularity beyond London. I think it's a very London thing to love him. Hmm. But that's a good situation for now for him. Richard Shield asks, why does the team think there is such an overlapping of the Venn diagrams of Brexit supporters and climate change deniers? I think they don't like facts or figures <laughs> or evidence. <laughs> I think they've kind of, yeah, I got a like, I got my gut instinct on science. I think that's where the, the two yeah. meet. Really, what, I'd have seen in my pants kind yeah. of guy. They're really interesting ways to be anti-establishment, that, though, because those if those are the two things that you choose, you're, you're what are you against? You're against scientists and you, you're against economists. Um, and... I don't know. I, I think there is something in that as the two people you decide that you don't like, the two groups. It's quite, it's quite telling, isn't it? Hmm. There was a YouGov poll just the other day. We had this most sort of most remarkable set of kind of questions, you know, to ask leavers and remainers. And it turned out that, it, you know, this is such this sort of formalising this cultural divide that existed already to the point where there were marked divisions in which party you thought the Doctor and Doctor Who voted for. <laughs> How you Lib like Dem, your state? <laughs> <laughs> you know how you like your state. Leavers tended to like it. Um, well done. Well done. <laughs> um, I was just thinking, <laughs> what's the wrong way? What's the wrong way? <laughs> yeah. But it was it was incredible. Oh, leavers. Seventy percent of leavers, uh, I think, thought that gollywogs were not offensive. <laughs> I mean, it was literally the most sort of trivial things, but just revealed these fundamental cultural mm-hmm. divides. And climate change denial seems to be one of those things that people who are angry that there aren't gollywogs on marmalade anymore <laughs> would be into. There seems like a whole kind of, just perhaps, a whole basket of beliefs. Perhaps there are people who also aren't very good at thinking about the future, frankly. 
I mean, both those things, uh, you know, about leaving a world to the next generation. Neither of those things seems a, a blessing, if, that, if that's your beliefs. I think a well-done steak would be a reminder of climate change. <laughs> they see it on the face. Oh, hang on. This reminds me of something. <laughs> um, Anna, a light-hearted one to end on, from Keith Douglas. How seriously do you think May's government takes threats of political violence from Britain's nationalist right with regards to getting the hard Brexit they want? This is what Nigel Farage is always kind of like nudge, nudge, wink, winking about. Yeah, well, they all do, actually. I mean, even the quite responsible ones do this stuff. It's sort of always, it's like half warning, half threat, really, is what they're sort of going going for. I don't imagine that they take it particularly seriously. I can't possibly believe that they do. I just can't see it. There doesn't seem to be any sort of credible risk of that kind of thing. I'm sure there'd be marches and protests, but I I can't. Yeah, but they're going to be like Ledson for Leeds and like the flotilla, the Farage flotilla, aren't they? That's what's going to be. That Ledson for Leave, that video of the Ledson for Leave march from Millbank to Parliament might be the saddest (laughs) thing that I saw all of last year. It's my favourite thing. It's my favourite thing that came out of Brexit that video. There's a longer version, which you don't always get to see, that has at the end the camera pans down and there's this little terrier dog and it wheezes on a lamppost at the end. <laughs> and, and that is brilliant. Anyway, but that version isn't on YouTube. No manners, but what a critic. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll have more Ask Romaniacs next week. That's quite enough Brexit for one day. Thanks to Rosamund Irwin, our splendid special guest. What are you working on at the moment? I've actually just interviewed Monica Lewinsky. We talked about being publicly shamed, which unfortunately she is an expert on. Was she nice? Are you allowed to say? If she's... She was nice. I think there's something very depressing about your life being determined by a mistake you made when you were 22 and actually i think that is rather heartbreaking and will that be that will be available on the internet yes yes but also dorian they have this thing called paper that they occasionally print. <laughs> but i think it will have already been gone done by done the time it. the podcast oh, is out no. it'll be chip paper yeah and, and uh, at least three percent of our listeners don't live in london <laughs> <laughs> Again, Ian yeah. scratching head, <laughs> looking at his map where it's just sort of London surrounded by dragons. <laughs> and thanks as ever to people hating Ian Dunt. <laughs> and thanks to Gronia Maguire. What's uh, happening next with What Has the News Ever Done For Me? Uh, we've got um, our next show is in December and we've got the brilliant Jack Bernhardt and Viv Groskup. So it'll be brilliant. Yeah, lots of fun. Are you sure there'll be enough news? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> if all else fails, we've got I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here to talk about, so it should be okay. And also you can make your own fake news these days. There you go. <laughs> As ever, we will play out with Demon is a Monster, our smash hit theme tune by Corner Shop, and a roll call of some of our beloved Patreon backers. If you'd like a mention yourself, plus Romaniacs, mugs, bags and t-shirts, then visit our Patreon page via romaniacs.com and pledge us a small contribution. Until then, here's a Dutch sign-off from listener Caroline Will. We'll see you next week. Tot ziens en blijf strijden. Thanks on behalf of Romaniacs to Stuart Taylor, Jez Wiles, Rupert Totman, Diane Lee, Kerry Evans, Andrew Anderson, Eleanor Rylance, Joe Carina, Andrew Jackson and Steve Bullock. And it's thanks from me to Maria Duggan, Roz, Declan Monohan, uh, Mike Rogers, Steve James Butler, Ken Davies, Julie Armstrong, Kiara Minnett, Martin Digon, and Tom Cleaver. And finally, for me, many thanks to Claire, Edith McLeod, Ian Fletcher, Rebecca Warren, Eugene Beer, Stu, Doug Parr, Kay Edmonds, Maggie Kilpatrick, and Melissa Kane. If we haven't read out your name yet, don't worry, there'll be more next week. 
Romaniacs was presented by Ian Dunt and Dorian Linsky and produced by Andrew Harrison and me, Matt Hall. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Thank you.